All right, welcome back to Farrowall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Andrew Gennardis. Uh, for those of you who are into New York politics, you'll know that Andrew is a state senator from the 26th District, which incorporates different parts of Brooklyn. He's the chairman of the Budget and Revenue Committee. Um, but the reason I asked him to come on specifically, he's got a really, I would argue, groundbreaking bill on social media regulation that gets at a lot of the things we talk about on this podcast. And so he and I were, were just talking about it. I said, hey, why don't we redo this conversation here on the podcast? So, Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hello. Yeah. So so we'll get into the the, the social media thing in, in a second. But I'm curious about just sort of your, in some ways, not a typical elected official, meaning and, and it's a it's a compliment to you. So I guess it's insult to your to your um, <laughs> colleagues. But you presumably could do other stuff that pays more money, right? You're choosing to do this. This is not the best job you could ever get, at least from an income perspective. Probably so, true. So given that, how do you sort of honestly assess the pros and cons of being an elected official? Like, like not the like, oh, I'd love to serve the public, but like, what's truly good about the job, and which parts really suck? Um, you know, for me, I, I, you know, not to take an easy uh, ride out of this, but uh, for me, it is about the ability to know that I ended every day like doing at least one thing to help someone. Okay. Like I, yeah. uh, I don't have the brain to be in medicine. I can't can't be a surgeon. I can't sit you back up. Uh, I don't have the brain to come up with like the next big thing that everyone gets excited and hot about. But I think I have the ability to like take problems and then try to solve them, which is basically what government does. It could be a problem like figure out how to fix the pothole. Or it can be a problem like figure out how we're going to like protect kids on social media. Like there's and, and everything in between, and my brain just works in that way. And so for me, it's very rewarding to get the satisfaction of actually trying to do that. Right. So I would say the best part of your job, arguably having had you know been, been in similar, mm -hmm. is you can sort of take on almost any societal intellectual problem and try to come up with a solution. Exactly. I would imagine one of the more frustrating parts is the actual process At uh, times, of yes. the solution actually happening. Yes. Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, it's not easy uh, and it can be very, very frustrating at times or even just, you know, seeing the roadblock, seeing the, the disingenuousness that exists in, in the system sometimes that can be really frustrating for someone who's a, you know, quote unquote, true believer. Um, but, you know, you, you make the best of it. You just keep trying, keep plugging away and you do it for as long as it's rewarding and as long as you get something out of it. And then you pass the baton to someone else. Right. And how do you like for most of your colleagues, I would argue that they're not necessarily using that intellectual framework for the cost benefit analysis. It's they keep doing it because this is their job and it's because this makes them feel special and gets them mm -hmm. attention and everything else. So you're a really young guy. How do you not become a hack eventually? <laughs> um, that's a great question. I think for me, um, you know, I I try to stay as close to the values that my parents raised me with, which you know, really a big influence on my life. And like I just said, as long I, everyone I look up and I look in the mirror, and if, as long as I can look myself in the mirror, mm -hmm. I know that it, it's another day worth doing. And the moment that it's not, I feel comfortable enough to say, "All right, my time is done." Yeah, you know, this is great. fleeting. Yeah. We don't have this forever. I'm not going to have people opening doors for me forever, calling me senator forever. It's a gift. It's a privilege. And the moment that, that stops being the case, I know that it's time to time exit to stage on. left. Yeah, that makes total sense. So um, you've got a bill that I think is really groundbreaking on, on regulating social media. Um, so let's just start with listeners with, one, what's the bill? And two, what made you choose to do it? Great. So um, we actually have, it's, two, it's two concurrent bills that we've been okay. working on. Um, the first is called the Stop Addictive Feeds Exploitation Act, so the Safe for Kids Act. Um, and the second one is the Child Data Privacy Protection Act. And these bills go hand in hand because what we're trying to do is we are trying to protect the mental health and personal privacy of young people 
online. Uh, the last decade, we've seen an explosive growth in the use of algorithmic feeds to curate content for, for users. We all, we're all victims of it. Every time we open up Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, whatever, uh, we want to see a video about one topic. 20 minutes or three hours later down the rabbit hole, we're seeing things entirely different than what we signed up to see. And the apps are designed to keep our eyes glued on them longer and longer and longer so that they can get more data off of what we click on, what we pause on, what we put on our profiles. If we like pizza, the color purple, and Bruce Springsteen, well, that goes into a formula and that makes money for a company somehow because then they're, mm -hmm. they're selling you ads on that stuff mm -hmm. the longer they keep your eyes glued on here. And kids, you know, you read the paper every day, there's a mental health crisis in kids, huge issues with self-esteem, huge rate, uh, increases in self-harm, suicidal ideation, depression, especially for young teenage girls. Um, but kids across the board, and social media is, is not the single one driver, but it's a huge part and a huge contributor to this mental health crisis that everyone's talking about and everyone is seeing. Um, and so our legislation is really meant to kind of break the cycle and the hold that, that these apps hold on us. Mm -hmm. The first thing we're trying to do is regulate the use of these algorithms to say social media companies cannot, by default, show minors under the age of 18 content using an addictive algorithmic feed. Show them what they signed up to see. They want to follow their friend Sally and their friend Bobby and the Taylor Swift fan page? Let them see that. Don't take them from there to 20 minutes later showing them self-harm videos right. and how to buy so, suicide so you're not, kits. So it would be like no news suggested you might like type exactly. stuff? Yeah. Exactly. Think about how Facebook used to be before it went off the rails, right? Before it started giving you, you know, COVID cures with battery acid and graham crackers, right? Like you just, you followed your friends, you followed your your family, you followed whatever the neighborhood group page, and that was it. Uh, algorithms they figured out is how they can make tons of money. And there was a study that just came out a week or two ago from Harvard, ironically, of the Chan School at Harvard, which <laughs> Silla Chan, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's wife, yeah. um, that in 2002, 22. Social media companies made $11 billion off of ad revenue, specifically from minors under the age of 18. They have 11 billion reasons to not want to change the status quo because it's making them boatloads and fistloads of money. Um, so what we're trying to do is, is, is break that stranglehold. The companies cannot use as a default these, uh, these algorithms. Uh, they have to turn off by default notifications overnight so that kids are not up all night waiting for a ping, waiting for a like, waiting for a comment, waiting for a tag. Um, and it gives parents a little bit more control into how these apps interplay with their children's lives. So my, my kids, who are still both minors, um, how would their feed look different than it does today? It would be linear based on who they choose to follow. Okay. So if they have 100 followers or 1,000 followers, or people, they're following 100 people or 1,000 people, they would see a linear feed based on, you know, I guess it's up to apps. They want to show it chronologically, they want to show it by re whatever they want to do, but they would not be seeing content that they did not sign up to see, right. people that they don't follow. Nothing promoted towards Nothing them. Nothing promoted towards them. Um, unless you, as the parent, affirmatively chose that option, and we're giving you the ability to make that decision. We're saying, you know, so we, we don't want to- opt in? It's an opt, it's an opt out. It's an opt into the algorithm. So, yeah. yes, yes, so right. an opt into the algorithm. With, with parental consent. Um, they do this in other jurisdictions already, like Europe has a lot of this in that mm -hmm. direction. So this is nothing new. This is nothing that the companies can't handle. They can't, they certainly can design their apps this way because they've done it elsewhere. Um, and in Europe, how much, 
I guess what would worry me a bit is just we're also conditioned to just hit accept on everything and ignore all the boilerplate. Um, how do you prevent them from effectively just sort of sneaking it right past everyone? That, you know, it's never going to be a perfect solution here. Um, you know, we think with, with verified consent, um, you know, you have to scroll through, you have to look at this stuff, and at least we're giving parents the option and, and a little bit of empowerment. It's, you're never going to stop every single case of this from happening. Sure. Um, but, you know, like, the, once you put the apps on notice this way, and with everyone talking about the impact of social media across the board, like, this is a societal conversation right now. Parents are overwhelmed because they don't know what to do about what's happening and what their kids are seeing online. This gives them a tool to be able to start to fight back a little bit. Um, so I think we'll have some great success here. And it, it changes the tone and the tenor and the contours of the conversation moving forward. Yeah. So you mentioned you know, that, that the, the platforms have 11 billion reasons to not want to do this. And I, I think that's right, right? Which is we, for years now we've been saying well, you guys should be better people, right? And just in the same way that we shouldn't expect politicians to not do what's in their electoral interest at all times. Yeah. Businesses are not going to do what's in, in their profit interest yeah. um, at all times. In Europe, the EU as a governing body of, I don't know, 28 countries or whatever it is, has been very proactive on all kinds of uh, tech regulation, including protecting minors, protecting data, and things like that. Um, why do you think that hasn't happened in the U.S.? And how do you feel about doing it from the perspective of, of, of the state? So I think the biggest driver, I think there's two things motivating Europe more than so than here. Number one, there are a much stronger culture for privacy in, mm -hmm. in Europe, uh, collectively across the board, so that people are predisposed to want to be able to hold on to more of their personal privacy. And number two, there is no equivalent in Europe or any of the uh, European uh, member countries uh, to the First Amendment. And a lot of what we're seeing happening in the United States around social media. A lot of the conversation from a regulatory and a legal perspective has been about you know, regulating the content uh, of social media. Because even as we're talking about it, we're talking about this content that we don't want kids to see. And so a lot right. of the solutions that have come up so far in states and elsewhere have been content-based restrictions, which fall victim to the First Amendment. Yeah. For better or for worse, that's we have that in our Constitution. It's our governing document. And we have laws in place that say you cannot ban certain types of, uh, of content, which is why you know, our approach here is a little bit different. There's been about a dozen or so states that have passed laws around social media. Um, they've all been tied up in the courts because they've all gone after the content yep. of, of what's on there. We're taking a different approach. We're saying the content, though we take issue with it, we're not going after. We just want to change how these tech companies show the content, the medium, not the, not the actual content right. itself. And how does it differ, since we're just talking about minors here, in, in terms of protected speech and all of that, is it the same standard applied legally, or um, is there a right to be more restrictive towards minors? You can, as long as there is a compelling government interest uh, at stake here, you can regulate types of content and types of speech. Uh, generally speaking, when it comes to minors, we do have a little bit more luck, but it's still a very, very high bar to meet right. uh, when it comes to the, you know going after the content of messages. Right. Although, to your point that you started off with, I mean, all of this content has effectively led to a massive mental health crisis, both among teenagers, but, but arguably just among Americans and people who just use social media generally. Well, I think the best thing you could ever do is not use social media yeah. if, if you can avoid it. Um, Which is hard to do for a lot of us. Yeah, it's, it's, well, it's funny. So, so, right. So I, I, you have to use it because you're a politician. I, I don't use it um, because I'm not. Um, and I'm also 50, right? But my kids, 
they they hate it, and yet at the same time, my daughter did an episode with with me and Hugo once where she spent uh, she's seventeen and she spent probably three quarters of the interview talking about all of the harms of social media, and then the very last thing she said was follow me on Instagram, and she gave yeah. out her handle right um, because you know she's a kid and, and they couldn't yeah. live their lives without it, especially once COVID hit and there was just this complete merging of, totally, of school totally. and, and online life. So um, the bill itself, right, I want to talk about it from three different perspectives. Yeah. One is the opposition from the platforms. Two is the political landscape, and you've teamed up with both the governor and the attorney general. And then three would be parents, right, which you and I have been talking yeah. about a little bit and, and how we mobilize them. So, so let's start with the platforms. Obviously, they don't want this bill to happen because yeah. if you succeed, one, giant market in and of itself, and two, precedent for... The rest of the country, and I would say, in my experience in regulating tech, what happens in New York is the opposite of Vegas. What happens in New York is seen and felt everywhere, everywhere, not just by the way here, the whole world, and has a massive, you know, replicating effect. Um, so I, I get why they're terrified. What's the argument they're making to try to even pretend that there's some public good in stopping your bill? So we're we're seeing two lines of uh, of attack basically. Number one. Uh, you know, and by the way, these tech companies have hired armies of lobbyists. Yeah. They're raising lots of money. They're out there. They're doing two things. On the one hand, they're saying, we agree. We want to protect kids online. And that's why we have all of these safety features. You open up the New York Times every day. There's full-page ads from Instagram. We, we support legislation to protect kids online, blah, 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 blah. They want you to think that they agree with you. They want to make it voluntary. They want to make it all on their terms, which you know does not work. Self-regulation here does not work because they have not done it. Um, and in fact, just the opposite. They've continued down this path um, to make it harder and harder to protect kids online. So they're, they're saying that we with, we're with you. It's just the details matter. We want to make sure we get the details right, of course. Um, secondly, their other line of attack, on the other hand, is they've empowered these AstroTurf um, associations to come onto the scene and to say, oh, Gennardus wants to shut down the Internet for kids. Gennardus wants to make it harder for immigrant children to get email accounts, and Gennardus wants to make it harder for LGBTQ youth to find community and resources, and this is just government and oversight and censorship by Gennardus, and, and, they're, and they're trying to change the internet forever. And it's totally ludicrous and just bunk. I mean, there's just no validity to any of that. Um, so they're trying to say, it's don't worry, we're on top of it, don't be so afraid, and by the way, you should be afraid of what they're trying to do to you because they're going to make the internet so much worse. Trust us. We know what we're doing here. So, so your colleagues, as they're thinking about this, right? Because it's it's impossible to believe that they don't know that that's just a bullshit argument, right? Um, so, I guess the things that might motivate them to still oppose the bill, despite knowing that it's unquestionably the right thing to do, would be one: if you get enough sort of left wing groups and they start worrying about the impact in their next primary, and two: are these companies likely to spend? five, six figures per legislative district race in a super PAC to try to take out people? And is that our jet, jet valid concern? Um, we haven't, it, it's very much on my radar as a valid concern. We haven't seen that metastasized yet or materialized mm -hmm. yet, but I am very, very concerned about what these companies might do um, when faced with even a, a minor bit of regulation to curb the most excess of their of their actions. Right. Um, so we're kind of like keeping an eye on this. I think that you're right. A lot of my colleagues do see through some of the bogus arguments, but you know they're recruiting uh, different groups who have legitimacy in community. They have you know valid organizations, and they're they're selling them them this this scare book, the scare tactics, and it's working in some cases. So we're trying to play offense and defense to peel off as many of these groups that we otherwise work very well with to say, look, don't buy into what 
the metas well, and the and the whatever. And not, none of those groups aren't getting checks, right? I mean, no. how many groups do you think are coming out against your bill that were not paid to do so? Uh, you know what? That is a concern of ours. There's, it's hard to prove, right? It's hard to prove. We don't see the direct link. Yeah. But I'm, look, corporate sponsorships, community sponsorships, community. You know, there's obviously a lot going on here, um, and we're we're concerned about it, and we're, right. we're we're trying to pay attention as much as possible. Um, there's no direct quid pro quo, but this is how the this is how the sausage gets made, right? And this is one of the things that people don't always want to see is how you make laws it, like this. It'd be interesting to sort of have a hearing, arguably, just into. Um, nonprofit and sort of advocacy groups receipt of corporate contributions mm-hmm. and just shine enough of a light on it to make them nervous to say, I don't want an artist fucking with me on this yeah. issue. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, of course I would love Facebook's money, um, but the five grand isn't worth me losing all my credibility and the bad attention. Right. And maybe that's sort of a form of offense worth going on. So the bill itself, the good news is you have two very powerful allies. Yeah. You have the governor and you have the attorney general. So one, how did that all come together? Because I mean, you started this on your own yeah. and then they, they joined you in the fight. Um, and give me sort of like if you were a pundit on the sidelines trying to predict the the gameplay for the, from, yeah, from the right word, but how it's going to play out for the bill. Yeah. What do you think? So, you know, I've been working on this issue for about two years now. And then about six or eight months ago, the attorney general's office reached out to us and said, hey, we love your focus on this. We're, we're looking at these issues also. We've studied your, I, I introduced the previous version of this bill about a year and a half ago. Um, we've studied your bill. We think it has some issues that might tie it up in litigation if it gets mm-hmm. passed. We've been studying this issue. We think we can get at the same problem in a different way. Can we talk to you about it? Absolutely. I'm never going to turn away from someone saying we want to help make your work product better. Yeah, sure. um, we spent about six months going back and forth with the Attorney General's office. They had a great team there um, helping us rethink a lot of these issues, honing in on the algorithm as the worst offender of all the offenses that social media companies can can uh, perpetrate on young people. Um, so we honed in on, on, the, on the algorithms. And we produce this bill product. And as we're getting ready to launch it, we hear from the governor's office that they're interested in the issue also. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that they were planning to make it a part of the state of the state address this yep. coming year. So we said, let's do this all together. And so in October, we launched the bill myself, um, uh, Nilly Rosick, the assemblywoman from Queens, who's my partner in the legislature on this, Governor, James, um, Gov- governor Hochul and Attorney General Tish James. Uh, we launched the bill, great fanfare, get it out of the gate. And now the governor in her state of the state last week, mm-hmm. to her word, she highlighted these bills specifically, mm-hmm. both of these bills, the algorithm bill and then the child data privacy bill. And uh, she's supposed to be releasing her budget. We're recording this podcast on the 15th of January. So tomorrow's the 16th of January. Tomorrow is budget day. She's mm-hmm. releasing her budget tomorrow and the text of her budget. And we are expecting that these bills will be included in the budget Directly. So for the listeners, because I think, you know, unless you're an Albany expert, you don't know why that's like an unbelievably significant thing. Um, so the governor, correct me if I'm getting the process yeah. wrong here, but the governor proactively introduces a budget. The legislature then tends to kind of produce their own version, which isn't ever really in balance because they're just sort of satiating a lot of different groups and things like that. There's a negotiation, but they're really always working off the governor's draft and then changes ultimately the final budget reflects things that weren't the governor's document they get put in things that come out but if you're starting as in it's sort of the 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 opt-in opt-out in a way it's like a version of that it is so much more likely that the language actually happens than if you have to create something from nothing that that's exactly right and in new york state you know unlike what we learn in third grade civics or you know the schoolhouse rock 
the governor controls the budget process in New York by design of our state constitution for the last hundred something years. Uh, and so literally, the governor proposes a budget, the legislature counters with their wish list, as you, as you put it. Um, we go back and forth and negotiate. At the end of the day, the actual document that we vote on is a document that is submitted by the governor to the legislature. Literally so much as that before we vote, we have to wait for their office to deliver the actual document to the legislative chamber. And that's the bill we vote on. So having this language included there is a huge momentum boost for us because it forces the issue onto the table and it forces us to negotiate uh, about the, the particulars of this bill as part of the budget negotiations. So, so as you mentioned, today's January 15th. Um, you're supposed to vote on the budget by March 31st. Doesn't always happen, but but more often more than not, not, it tends to, right? So we're talking 10 weeks, yeah. really. It's, it's, it's a sprint here. So what are the main activities on your end to try to make sure the language stays in the budget, and what do you think are the biggest risks to you? So we now have to, we're doing a full court press to make sure that we are talking to every member of the legislature to make sure that, A, they know what we're trying to do, they're comfortable with the language, address any concerns, and try to cut off at the pass any attempts from tech to kind of pick us off one by one. Mm -hmm. So that is, that is ongoing from tomorrow until the passing of the budget um, to make sure that we keep this language in there. Our biggest risks, I think, you know, there's been a, a push in the last couple of years in Albany to shy away from heavy policy being included in the budget, especially policy that's not directly state fiscally re uh, related. You know, it's hard to say that regulating algorithms has a direct connection to state tax revenue. Um, and so our biggest risk is having this language kind of kicked out in negotiations, then having us try to pick up the pieces and carry on the momentum without the urgency created by a budget deadline. And where do you think, because ultimately one challenge you're going to have is in the very final days, it's the governor, the speaker, the Senate majority leader, and their staff's in the room, and you're not in the room, yeah. right? Um, where do you think the legislative leaders are on this? Uh, I think we've gotten some great response so far. Okay. And I think the fact that you know, as far as I'm concerned, I've kept my my leadership kind of involved every step of the way. They know what I'm doing, how I'm doing it, what my priorities are. This is my number one legislative priority in the coming year. Um, we're not going to take anything to chance. We're going to whip all of our members in support of this. We're going to activate, uh, you know, constituents, parents in particular, in different right. districts across the state, not just in New York City, to really put pressure on their local senator and their assembly member to keep this issue alive. We're going to go proactive with our message through podcasts like this and interviews and other things like that to keep the issue forefront um, because we don't want to create any space for tech to come in and say, ah, don't worry, guys, we got this. Or maybe not this year, maybe next year. We want to go straight through to the end. Um, and it just takes a lot of pressure. And so while obviously Albany is heavily Democratic, um, you know, I'm sure you're not averse to Republican support for the bill. Absolutely not. So it, it's interesting when you think about sort of their political calculation here, right? So on one hand, a lot of the group, unless they make it somehow some sort of MAGA thing too, like a lot of groups on the left who are going to oppose this if they're paid to do so, doesn't matter Republican or Republican primary, right? There is sort of this pro-business anti-regulation argument. But I have to say, like, I don't know a single parent who has kids who are able to use the internet without, you know, the parent sitting next to them using the computer that isn't terrified and doesn't feel totally, again, maybe pre-COVID a little bit, yeah. but once COVID hit, uh, you know. Changed the game for everybody. Yeah, he goes yeah. down at a mic, but you, know, you can nod yes or no. Like, I don't know if you have felt the same way, but like once COVID hit, it was it was over, right? Like I have no, and my, look, my daughter, one of the things I care about this issue a lot, you know, engaged in self-harm and, and everything she learned on how to do it, she learned during the uh, pandemic on Instagram specifically, right? 
And if she hadn't seen that content, her life might have been different. Yeah. Um, she's great now, but it, it was hard for a while. So, um, so yeah, how do, you, how do parents get involved? People are just generally listening to this, and they're like, hey, I want to help. This is great. What should they do? So uh, two things. Number one, uh, if you you should know who your senator and your assembly member are. If you don't, you can Google it. There are you know, websites, who represents me. Find out who your state senator is. Find out who your state assembly member is. Sign and, and make sure you reach out to their office and say, hey, I support these bills. Please make sure you support them as well. That's number one. Number two, we've created a website called KeepKidsSafeOnlineNY.com. It's just a landing page where we have information about the bills, uh, and you can also just share your story. So, you like you told the story about yep. your daughter. You're not the only one who's had you know this this story happen to them. We want to hear the stories of parents uh, and kids across the state, so we can uh, you know understand how it's affecting them, and then and then talk. Pub- we should be talking publicly right. about what these apps are doing to these and, kids. And if there are parents and kids who said, you know what, I'd be willing to even take it a step further. I'd be willing to testify to hearing. I'd be willing to go meet with legislators or staff. Do you want that? Absolutely. We have. Great. We don't have a hearing scheduled for this yet. I don't know if we're going to get a hearing or not, but certainly that's something that we're contemplating. But either way, we, you know, I think it's impactful. If you call your state senator and say, I'm an impacted teenager, let me tell you what, what social media did to me. I'm an impacted parent. Let me tell you what social media did to my, my young daughter, my young son. That goes so much further than having an interest group or a lobby group, whatever, come to Albany and, and recite talking points that they don't even believe in or stand by. Hearing from impacted individuals is a tremendous asset uh, when it comes to passing legislation like this because it has a real human impact. Yeah. All right. So I, I think we've covered this thoroughly. Thank you for doing it. Obviously, as you know, I'm wildly yeah. in support of this Great. thing. Um, let's pivot out a little bit just to um, legislative session, you know, kicked off. State of the state was a week ago. Budget justice tomorrow. Um, what do you see else that are kind of the big issues to happen in the next five months or so? So I think, you know, there's a couple things going on. Aside from this, you know, the social media stuff, we have to do something about housing in, in New York State. Yeah. We we cannot continue to go down this path. It is a huge barrier to keeping people in this state. It is one of the number one issues people talk about constantly. It is driving the affordability crisis. Uh, you know, the governor put out a plan last year. Didn't have a lot of support in the legislature. I supported a lot of it. Some things I thought could have been a little bit differently. Looks like the governor this year has kind of taken her foot off the gas a little bit on housing and is kind of going her own way. I really think the legislature needs to have a housing plan. It's not going to be, we're not looking to hit a grand slam here, folks. We're looking to hit singles, doubles, triples. So what what are policy examples of things that you think would make it easier to build affordable housing? So I think, number one, there has to be some type of financial incentive to create deeply affordable housing. It's expensive to build housing. Yeah. And the way you build affordable housing is to subsidize it. Either you subsidize the construction or you subsidize the rent or you subsidize the property tax burden. One of those three has to happen in order to produce an apartment that someone can afford to live in for a thousand bucks, twelve hundred bucks. there has to be some type of financial incentive on the table. And I think that gets married with some form of tenant protection to protect people from so unjust So bringing back 421A? Some version of 421A. I look the, the Gowanus example, I represent Gowanus. It's a great example of how 421A actually produces real affordable housing. Mm-hmm. You know, 40% of the units scheduled for development in the Gowanus neighborhood are going to be affordable to people making 60% of the area median income. That's unheard of when it comes to the 421A conversation, which historically has been about 130% of the area median income. We're talking half of that. So I think if we can replicate the success of Gowanus in many other places, that's a huge step forward. I'm working on a bill called the Faith-Based Affordable Housing Act that allows religious institutions to leverage their assets to develop truly affordable housing as well. You have a lot of congregations that are dying out. They have a lot of assets, land, otherwise. Let them put that to good use to house people. 
Um, and, you know, and, and there's lots more on the table we can talk about with housing. Um, something else we're really focusing on, economic security. You know, with when Congress let the expanded uh, federal child tax credit lapse, we saw, during the pandemic, we saw child poverty rates cut in half because of the child tax credit expansion. Once that expansion lapsed, we saw poverty rates double again amongst children. I've been working on something called the Working Families Tax Credit, which, if enacted in New York, would basically cut the child poverty rate by 25% in New York alone. And how would it do that? So it combines the state child tax credit and the earned income tax credit, mm-hmm. and it boosts the value of both. Because if you're a family getting the tax credit, you're, you're getting both. Yep. Let's simplify the tax code for families who need that help. Don't make them go through hoops and hurdles to get you know money that's owed to them, and pay it out quarterly, just like the federal benefit was paid out monthly. We can't do it more than quarterly because of federal tax implications, but imagine you're a working family and you get 300, 400 bucks every three months. That's money for clothes, school supplies, food, mm, yep. utilities. God forbid you want to take a trip to the museum or the zoo or whatever families want to do to and how, enjoy themselves. In the context of uh, a contested budget with lots of different claims on the resources, mm. how do you feel about the chances of that? So we, I feel pretty good because last year, as a down payment towards this, we expanded the child tax credit to 800,000 more kids yep. that were previously ineligible. Putting you also added 300,000 more kids to school meals. Yeah, that was a huge, huge, I hope we can close the gap on school meals, whatever's yep. left this year. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've structured our proposal to be a five-year phase in. Uh, it's about a $2 billion fiscal broken up over five years. It's, the, the money is there, even in a, in a tough budget cycle. New York's budget was $230 billion last year. I mean, we're talking about poverty or not poverty. It shouldn't be that hard of a right. choice. We'll get that to like, right, kids, um, kids eating or having basic right. clothing. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we, we spend a lot in this state, even with a budget projected budget shortfall. I, it's just a matter of building the coalition to support. Easiest thing to say you support is supporting people who need help. The hardest thing sometimes it is to get votes for or, or to change things to get votes for is when you're actually helping people who need help. Um, so it's a fight that I'm going to keep working on this year and, and keep trying to make progress on. So last piece, uh, we're in an election year. And so both uh, not, not the statewide elected officials, but legislature. And then, you know, perhaps even, you know, even worth talking about more would be the presidential election and what's happening in Washington. I know you're a state legislator and not, not federal, but, like, just give me your read on, on the presidential and, and how you're feeling about it. And, and where you, your district, which is an interesting district, mm-hmm. your current district, and also, if you don't mind, for the listeners, your yeah. former district, because yeah. I think they're very different 100%, in the context percent yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I got elected five years ago, six years ago now, um, in a district that's very different than what I represent today. My old district was neighborhoods of southern Brooklyn from Bay Ridge, where I'm born and raised, all the way out to Marine Park, um, you know, where Floyd Bennett Field is, where we're housing 2,000 migrants right yep. now out there in Floyd Bennett Field. Uh, that district was a plus-six Trump district. Um, with redistricting happening last year, and I was able to win, you know, twice, even with those headwinds. Um, last year, we get redistricted. It goes to an independent the monitor to draw the lines. My new district goes from Bay Ridge to Dumbo. That district was a plus 35 Biden district. So in the course of one term, I've gone from a plus 6 Trump to a plus 35 Biden. That's a 41-point swing politically. Um, I think people are terrified at the prospect of Trump coming back. I think they are absolutely, absolutely terrified. Uh, and it's going to have real consequences in New York because with all of the federal money flowing um, that President Biden was able to get us, along with our congressional leadership, uh, for infrastructure and things like that here in New York, that money is going to be gone 
if Trump returns to office. That means no more money to repair highways, you know, to tear down highways and reconnect communities. No more money for public transit. No more money to shore up safe net hospitals, and you name it. Um, so there's like a very existential financial fear amongst my colleagues and amongst people who care about these things. That if Trump gets back in and we don't take back Congress or the House. Uh, all that money is going to be gone, and we're going to be in even worse fiscal shape than we were are right now. Right. So we're all in agreement, obviously, on sort of what what we would like to see happen yeah. and what would be the right thing. If if Team Biden called you and said, Andrew, what's your advice, not just for your district, but just generally speaking, what should we be focused on? You know, what shouldn't we be? What would you tell him? You know, I think the president's done a great job that the numbers don't always, their storytelling don't doesn't always bear out. Yep. I think numbers are moving in a very positive direction, but I think just relying on numbers and just telling someone, oh, but unemployment is X percent, and oh, you know, inflation is... People, people don't live their lives based on numbers. They live their lives based on what they're seeing at the supermarket and what they're seeing with the utility bill and their rent bill and everything else. So I think we have to break out of this DC speak of, let's tell you what the data shows. Go out there and start telling stories and listen to people's stories. I find I was able to win in a, in a Trump district because, not because everyone agreed with me, but because I listened to people. I let people have their piece, speak their piece, explain what they're going through. I'd offer my contribution to try to help that. But we didn't agree with everything. People value being listened to, and they value when you give them the dignity of listening to their problems. Because everyone's struggling. Red, white, blue, purple, whatever. Everyone's struggling. And just you know, pay a little attention to that, and then show a little empathy in that regard. The president's great at showing empathy, um, but I think oftentimes campaigns take on this corporate you know, nature where it becomes very much... Uh, a bureaucracy, and it becomes very much this is what the consult consultants say to do and talk about things in this way. Yeah, you got to break out really of that bubble. Like the Hillary campaign in sixteen, you still get it resonates from people, and they were like the chief of staff to the deputy campaign manager for finance, and it's like it's like no wonder just you be lost. real with yeah. people. I mean, I I can't tell you how many people come up to me, used to come up to me on the street in my old district and say I disagree with everything that you know with all the votes you've taken, but when I had a problem. You know, you helped me out or you heard me out when I yelled at you and I appreciate you even just sitting there listening. That goes so far for people. Uh, and especially when you have Trump versus the alternative, right? Like we need to be out there listening to people and talking to them at a very human level. And be honest also, like we're not gonna solve everyone's problems. We're not gonna have an answer for everything. And if you tell, if, if you lead people to expect that you will, they're gonna be disappointed when you let them down. Don't set them up for that expectation in the first place. Just be honest and real about what you're gonna to try to do, what you have done, what you're gonna keep working on. People respond to that. I have found, you know, what do I know? I'm just a state senator, I'm not at that. All right, well, ho ho hopefully Team Biden will hear this and uh, we'll give you a call. So, all right, Andrew, uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for doing this, Bill. Thank you. And we're all in, so whatever we can do to help you, just let us Appreciate it, bro, thank you. Right. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Network, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.